Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we go to our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Yarcy S, Justin H, Casper J, Cindy W, and Brent S. On Smith Weekly Discussions today is Mr. Brandon Monroe. Brandon is the Managing Director and CEO of Bannerman Energy, a Namibian-focused uranium project developer advancing the Atango 8 conventional uranium project, which is a DFS stage project looking to enter finance and construction soon. Bannerman is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol BMN and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol B-N-N-L-F. Brandon, it's been a while. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be back on. Absolutely, Brandon. It's uh, good to finally do a program for the audience and get a little bit of your voice out there in the sector to kick the year off. Can't believe it. We're already touching February here, but why don't we start out with uh, just a general overview? You're well-respected and well-spoken, pretty much a class act, I'd say, in the uranium sector with respect to understanding of the inner workings of this sector, which for some people is quite complicated to sort out, especially if you're new, which we do have new audience coming in here day by day. But I'd like to get your position on this current market and what you see coming down the pipe for 2023. Well, thanks for the kind words, Andrew. It's It's been uh, more than a decade in the sector and I have had the opportunity, the privilege really, to get quite close to the inner workings of this sector and this market. And it is complicated. There's no question about that. It's an exciting time in uranium. It really is. And uh, if we were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago, it, we might be a little bit more subdued. But as we go to record today, we've just had three days in a row of Sprott Physical Uranium Trust back trading in net asset value premium. And I think that signals for the outside world what we're seeing inside the sector. We've had several years of building fundamentals in the uranium sector. And that's seen the uranium market climb out of a very, very deep and sustained bear market that saw the spot uranium price go as low as $18 a pound. Now we've recovered to so far circa $50. The price, as your more experienced listeners would uh, be well aware, the price touched $63, $64 in April last year, and then settled back down to a range of about $45 to $55. So in my mind, that marks kind of a halfway point in the recovery of this bear market. And the hallmarks of that recovery are a pronounced deficit in supply that can't be addressed anytime soon and it and can't be addressed quickly. And what that supply has done over the last three years in particular is address the primary contributing factor to why we found ourselves in such a long bear market, which was an oversupply. And that normalization, which has taken a good few years of deficit to address, has suddenly been amplified by physical 
financial demand, predominantly through the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, but also through Yellowcake listed in the UK. And we mustn't forget the emerging impact of ANU Energy, which is a Kazakh product that's, uh, again, by, raises money to buy physical uranium, stores it into the longer term, and they will soon be marketing into the Middle East. What that's done is that's played a big role in um, absorbing some of this excess supply that's built up during this bear market. But more importantly, what it's done is it's absorbed what's been known in the industry as mobile inventory. So mobile inventory is material that counterparties either don't particularly want, you know, they had too much uranium and they were just looking for a better opportunity or higher prices to get rid of it, or it's material that has been sold by producers that don't have a lot of interest in maximising the value of their uranium. Now, you might say, well, why would a producer be in that situation? And the clear answer is because it's insignificant byproduct. And a good example is Olympic Dam, where it's a gold copper mine first, produces quite a bit of uranium, but it's a rounding error to its owner's BHP. Now, what the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust has done is it's absorbed potentially even all of this mobile inventory that's been sloshing around the sector. And as per the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust um, initial objectives, they wanted to achieve price transparency. They, in a fairly opaque sector, what they wanted to ensure is that the spot price reflects the willing buyer, willing seller dynamic on a day. And for various reasons, it hadn't been doing that for quite some time. Um, we're starting to see that now. We've seen uh, in the last three days, the uranium price edge up because of buying in the spot market and because uh, the, it has tightened up and there's the usual flows of material into the spot market that flows from intermediaries and other market participants. There are still producers that sell into the spot market, but it appears and the industry view is that the distortionate effects of an oversupply of excess material that's sloshing around just looking from home has now been largely, if not totally, removed. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because that is a foundational setup that will make 2023 very, very interesting for the uranium sector uh, for two reasons. One is we formed a a foundational price in the range of 45 to $55. That's not enough to bring on the supply that's required in this sector. That's very clear. But equally, market players, including the buyers of uranium, the nuclear utilities around the world, uh, it's very clear for them that we won't be going back to certainly $18 uranium, but we won't be going back to $30 uranium or um, even $40 uranium. They understand that this is now the new base and uh, most of the utilities that I talk to understand that it's a base from which there's likely to be significant price growth over time. And of course, that tightening of the spot market, so it functions in a more transparent way, functions in a less distorted way, uh, where buying and selling is what determines the price, not secondary factors um, such as inventory management. That is a very important foundational start to 2023 because that will influence the other major mechanism in this market, that's the term contracting price. 
and it's a term contracting price that determines the financing and construction of new mines and the development of new supply, which is what this sector needs in the context of a significant deficit, as I've talked about, and very, very significant demand growth, uh, particularly fundamental changes and, and very exciting changes that have occurred to the prospects of nuclear energy just in the last 12 to 18 months. I think that was a great way to kick it off. Do you think the broad market, where we are, we saw 2022 broad market pretty much affected indirectly the uranium market. Other factors also uh, challenged things in 2022. What do you see in terms of the broad market impacting this sector in spite of these incredible fundamentals, which again, you and I have been in this sector quite a while. You obviously longer than I have, but this is the most compelling turnaround I've seen in terms of fundamentals of any sector. What's your thoughts on broad market impacts? Yeah, it's, it's a great area for discussion, Andrew, because there's a paradigm here. The, on the one hand, uh, I can make a really strong argument for the fact that nuclear power and therefore a uranium investment is highly defensive. And perhaps we can come on to that. But on the other hand, the uranium sector is so small that it can't swim against the tide. So the broad market definitely affects the sector and the choppiness and uncertainty and concern that we've seen in broader markets has brought both uranium equities down. It's affected the um, trading of uranium as a commodity, and it's also affected the capacity of physical investors such as Sprott and Yellowcake to um, continue to fulfill their ambitions in the sector. So going forward, I think what is the main variable on the trajectory of the uranium equities perspective here is not so much what's happening in uranium. That is very, very clear. It is more of a broad markets perspective. Now, because nuclear power and therefore uranium have got such good defensive qualities, I think we're back into a highly asymmetrical risk reward or upside downside risk pattern, um, similar to what we saw when uranium was trading at about $30. Um, it was hard to see much downside on the uranium price, particularly over time, and there was significant upside. We're back in that situation because uranium's trading circa $50, hard to see substantial downside there, and most market players fully recognize that. Um, still extraordinary upside, particularly when you start to analyze some of the more optimistic demand growth assumptions or demand growth scenarios. What does it take to fulfill that potential in the short term? And I'm talking in weeks and months. It takes a level of broader market stability so that uranium can simply swim in the direction it needs to swim. It's not being pushed to one side by uh, equities um, in the broader market or concerns about the Fed or whatever other inhibitors investors have got taking action. And those inhibitors, the most easy to understand form of that would be investors into, say, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Um, if they are very concerned, uh, as they were towards the end of last year, about the broader picture, well, they're going to be holding their funds back and it's not going to be capitalising that investment vehicle. But it does act as an inhibitor in other ways as well. It, it acts as an inhibitor of decision-making amongst utilities who will 
ultimately drive the term contracting price. It acts as an inhibitor of project development. So it affects both demand development, but also supply development. Um, obviously, it's had a very substantial effect on uranium equities. Um, most uranium companies are very um, significantly off their highs. Many examples of companies trading at half of their um, 2021 highs at the moment. And that can reverse quickly if we see that level of broader market stability. And that's what I'm watching very carefully at the moment. We've had some good news out. Um, this week, there seems to be a return of investor confidence. And of course, what people will be looking to is, um, you know, on the one hand, is that a bull trap? And on the other hand, is this really the, um, the final climb out of all of the volatility that we've had over the last predominantly nine months in this, uh, in 2022? I think it would be quite constructive with respect to just if this market does get impacted from broad market this year that is even more constructive for what's happening in this sector. And it already is. If you've looked out at the natural resource sector and you've looked at the various commodities and you've looked at where we are, again, this is the most compelling out there in my view. Um, some people might argue for carbon credits or 10 or what have you, but it is really compelling with the interesting point that we have energy issue globally. The discussion now coming into effect with respect to energy density and the huge moat that fission power has against all of its peers. You really can't even say they're peers. They're so inferior. And of course, you know, the holy grail with fusion is way out there in terms of timeline, but nonetheless, commerciality when it gets there is great. Big fan of that. So I appreciate that. Highly constructive any way you look at it for this year. I think people should just continue to be aware of what's happening here. Allocate capital where you can. If you've got it, you should have it do that. And uh, let me couple it with this next, get your take on the Ukraine-Russia war. This has been escalated recently with the supply of additional weapons to Ukraine and some other things that are happening. We don't need to really discuss here on this podcast. That's not what it's about, but it's going to escalate. Wanted to get your thoughts on that war. Obviously, we know a lot of the impacts that have come into the fuel cycle but also what do you think happens next? Because this story isn't over. And of course the war, very unfortunate, isn't over either. What happens next in the war, there's a number of different scenarios and I don't have a view on probability. You've got scenarios ranging from a surprise peace accord that uh, you know could be around the corner as we approach the anniversary of this um, war, anniversary of the invasion right through to uh, you know, a real dig-in scenario uh, where Russia placed one of its strengths as a military power, which is its capacity to endure, as we've seen in, you know, Syria uh, and other parts of the world. So what's interesting is to say, well, what do those different scenarios present for the uranium sector? So the first thing for listeners to understand is that this invasion and the accompanying tragedy of it has had a profound effect on policymakers and politicians and bureaucrats understanding of one of nuclear power's very most important attributes and that is energy security uh, it had been abandoned ignored um, and you've got to say it like 
in a criminally negligent way, certain economies, including Germany, had closed uh, emissions-free, incredibly safe, very efficient nuclear power plants, and instead ceded all of those benefits to Russia in the form of gas. And whilst there's an enormous PR campaign to try and mute the uh, hypocrisy of that and to try and cloud how much uh, negligence is involved and how much um, corrupt intellectual ideology is involved in that uh, decade-long process of decision-making, behind closed doors, it's well understood. Now, apart from the poster boy type example of how not to do things that Germany's delivered to Europe in particular, but the world more generally, there are some learnings that are being taken forward. So in terms of energy security, what does nuclear power offer? Well, first of all, you can store years of fuel for a nuclear power reactor inside your own border in a secure way. And that's always been um, the model for countries that were concerned about energy security. In a relatively um, small fiscal way, you can buy and stockpile many years of nuclear fuel and put it in a single warehouse that you can secure. So that's fundamentally different to any other source of energy, um, including the intermittent renewables, like whilst you can be pretty sure that the sun shines most of the time, it doesn't give security because it's not baseload, it's not 24 seven. Now, the other form of energy security that nuclear power offers is because those purchasing decisions on the cost of your fuel are made well in advance. And because most of the cost of nuclear power is its initial capital construction, it offers very, very consistent cost of electricity over a long period of time. So when you see these enormous spikes in electricity costs because the raw materials are spiking, it's the gas or the coal or the cost of deploying wind or solar, uh, nuclear just keeps producing power at more or less exactly the same price over the long term. And we've seen just how much of a benefit that is for nuclear utilities in Europe in this current crisis. Now that is being noticed, there's no question about that. And it's come as a bonus attribute or a, um, a bonus to the emissions-free credibility of nuclear power that had already gained momentum after COP26 in particular and continued in COP27. So the general acceptance was already open for nuclear power and now we've had driven home in tragically dramatic fashion the realisation that any serious economy, any serious developed economy, and any seriously ambitious developing economy must have nuclear power if it wants to have any prospect of energy security. Um, and what it also does is a number of secondary effects, in particular the cost argument. So um, we're in this remarkable situation in 2023 where the remaining holdouts of anti-nuclear sentiment um, they've realised that they just can't win people's minds on safety anymore. They can't win people's minds on uh, fear-mongering anymore. So they're trying to apply an economic argument. Now, if you have a weakness in your energy security, 
whether that's a commercial weakness because you're too exposed to volatility of energy prices, electricity prices, or in particular, if it's some sort of geostrategic weakness, as has been blown wide open in Europe, um, courtesy of this war that, let's be really clear here, Germany has significantly contributed to the pretext of war here by making Europe utterly vulnerable to Russian energy. Now, those little weaknesses, the cost of those uh, becomes so substantial that any argument about the relative cost of nuclear power versus intermittent energy sources, for example, um, is blown into utter irrelevance. So for example, the cost in the UK of energy subsidies. Now, this is just what's being paid back to the consumer so that households don't get bankrupted by soaring electricity prices. The cost of that in 2022 could have built six large-scale Hinkley C nuclear power plants. That's one year, and that has achieved zero. You put that money into building nuclear power plants, you've got 60 to 80 years worth of cheap energy once the capital's paid. But this is just simply putting your finger in the dike. This is just a band-aid. This is just stopping a political or social backlash. Those numbers are being understood by policymakers around the world. And whilst it hasn't yet found its way into the mainstream media, and whilst they're still being very cautious about testing the political waters, talking about it in public, behind closed doors, that's had a profound effect on the way that um, policymakers are viewing the prospects of nuclear power. That's having a rippling effect throughout the industry. So that's the basic setup. Now, if you then start saying, well, what are the different scenarios? Well, there's a scenario in the Ukraine war where we see an ugly escalation. And that pushes down an increased chance of sanctions in the US. It opens up a chance of sanctions. And, and when we say sanctions, we're talking about sanctions against Russian supply of uh, components of the nuclear fuel cycle, predominantly enrichment, but also conversion and uranium itself. It opens up the opportunity or the possibility of sanctions in the EU, and it pushes the trend that's already very evident of a bifurcated market. So you've got Russian side and you've got the EU slash US side, and we will see markets that are largely separated. Now that's all very positive for uranium. It's particularly positive for uh, either Western uranium producers, US, Canada, Australia, and it's particularly positive for neutral uranium producers. And the only substantial example in the world of that is Namibia, which is where our project is. So we watch this very carefully. That's an escalation scenario. Even a surprise peace accord scenario is positive for this sector. Um, all of what I described a few minutes ago is baked in. You know, no one's going to suddenly go, well, phew, we've got peace in Ukraine. Isn't that great? Uh, let's forget about energy security. We can go back to 10 years ago when it was uh, ignored. That's just not going to happen. The, the scars are running deep from this um, tragedy and this um, brutal conflict. Then if you go to a scenario which is a prolonged uh, war, so, uh, you know, years of conflict there where perhaps Russia's objective is to um, totally destabilise and wreck Ukraine so it can't be a 
um, a NATO threat. It's just going to continue to emphasize everything that I've just described from a nuclear power perspective, it will continue to entrench the bifurcation, even in the absence of direct government involvement via sanctions. The impact on the uranium sector will be twofold. One is the demand growth that we're already seeing in nuclear power will widen the supply deficit that we've got at the moment, but it will also create special opportunities for new entrants because we've got two factors that are demanding new supply. And so new entrants as in abandonment with our advanced Tango project. Um, you've got the commercial demand, which is coming in because we've got a deficit and prices are going up and all of those things that um, are visible with macroeconomic analysis of the uranium sector. But then you've got the geopolitical driver, the pull factor where um, countries who are increasingly investing their energy security in nuclear power realise that you absolutely have to have the uranium. And the uranium sector is a very, very small sector compared to uh, you know, electricity subsidies in the UK or the EU or just about any metric you can imagine in the context of this discussion. Um, the uranium sector is tiny. So the importance for a uranium mine like a Tango coming online to make sure that the West has got additional diversified sources of uranium supply uh, is enormous and is an order of magnitude greater than whatever the dollars and cents cost of constructing and financing a mine is and producing uranium. So both of those factors work heavily in the favour of bringing on new supply and will certainly provide a lot of momentum towards what is the more visible metric that incentivizes supply, which is the uranium price. It's a pretty good way to cover this off. You know, the history is compelling. I would just encourage people to look at the history of this, and it's very interesting what's happened here, and neither side is innocent. Anyway, with respect to how this impacts the awareness with respect to energy security, I'm actually a little bit disappointed in some of the responses coming out of certain nations. If this doesn't wake you up, I'm just uh, skeptical of the ability to govern, but hopefully this will result in some notable changes with respect to policy. And of course, the whole return to nuclear with respect to even looking at the U.S. build out from the 1970s to 1990s, that 20 year period of a build out, which was substantial, 70 reactors pretty impressive period of time. So hopefully we'll get back to that a bit and also making the argument that really when you weigh the total life cycle of nuclear power from the mining side to recycling remediation, that you could make an argument that this is net negative at the end. For the sake of time, let's move on here because I know there's lots of other exciting things to chat about and Bannerman specifically I wanna get into. Term contracting, you mentioned that earlier, obviously the underpinning of these new development projects at a price that works for the project um, is going to be key and the term contracting at that price that is suitable to kick off these projects is the most important thing that's before us especially us developers out there but we saw a nice uptick in volume in 2022 the preliminary numbers are north of 110 million pounds under term 2023 you see more less the same what do you think 
it's hard to answer that without going into a bit more depth about what term contracting really is. I say that because you've got different forms of term contracting, and the, but the numbers and the volumes all find themselves uh, in the same bucket. So a £100,000 extension under option to an existing term contract that was written six or seven or eight years ago um, still finds its way into the um, volumes that you've mentioned in the same way that a brand new contract might be that's written with a new producer who's planning on coming on board in 2026. But from an investor point of view, tracking the difference in those is profoundly important. Most of the volume that was written last year and even the year before was in the form of off-market contracting. That, for example, would be an existing producer goes to an existing customer and they have a negotiation that might be something like, look, would you mind rolling over that contract? Can we enter into another contract? Uh, same terms, maybe different pricing, but it's, a, it's quite an easy process as far as these negotiations go because the parties know each other. They know what they've just dealt with in terms of the, the contract that's either being duplicated or is coming to an end. As I say, in many cases, there's options built into those contracts. So it's, it's not even a, a negotiation, it's just an election. Uh, and there's been a lot of contracts that have just simply been extended and rolled over. So if they're market related um, with their pricing structure, um, it comes down to what is the appetite of the producer to write more market related contracts and what's the appetite of the consumer, the utility to accept more market related contracts as opposed to some of the other pricing mechanisms. So that's a relatively organic, relatively easy process that doesn't give you a lot of data about the shape of the development of this industry. It just tells you that producers have got more to sell and which they of course do because they're continuous mines and the consumers have got more to buy, which of course they do because they're continuously operating utilities. Where it gets really interesting is when you go to the other end, which is term contracting of utilities with new suppliers. So it's a new relationship. It's a new level of due diligence and understanding. It's bringing on a new diversified supplier um, with a, generally speaking, a more intensified pricing negotiation because the objectives of the two parties are quite different. So from a new producer's point of view, their primary objective is going to be writing term contracts that will satisfy financiers in whatever form that is. And so they're going to want to have more structure. They can't just simply say, well, we'll take spot plus a dollar at the time of delivery or whatever the, um, whatever a pure market related contract might look like. It becomes more important to them where they write floors into their contracts, where they write ceilings into their contracts, if they're dealing with some of the other mechanisms like base price escalated, and if so, do they escalate according to CPI or do they need to escalate according to something else because there's so much cost inflation in the mining sector? Um, as you can imagine, there's a stark difference between those two extremes and there's a range of contracting that sits in the middle. And the What's telling for me is more how much of that latter form of contracting do we see? 
And that's going to be that, and I can't predict that in a volume sense to answer your question directly, Andrew, because it's a function, first of all, of the price evolution in this sector. There's very few uh, new producers of any volume that we can take notice of that uh, will be willing to come into the market at current, based off current spot prices. So we need to see prices develop before the producers will be willing to start entertaining serious contracting. We also need to see the risk profile of the utilities um, evolve so that they are prepared to take a proportion of their portfolio and put it with a new producer where there's uncertainty about delivery timing, there's uncertainty about when they go into production, there's uncertainty depending on how complex the mining is. Um, there's often uncertainty about how long commissioning will take. Um, that's where our project has a real distinct advantage because it's so conventional. It's heat leaching and it's um, open pit and it's at surface. So for us, once we've actually initiated construction, we've got, in a relative mining sense, we've got a lot of certainty about that delivery timeframes. But not all mines are that simple. We're arguably the simplest um, pr uh, prospective uranium mine that's in development at the moment and around the world. So there's other extremes on that. Um, once we start to see that in any volume, that's going to tell investors uh, a couple of things. It's going to tell investors that the utilities overall risk profile has really changed. And that risk profile on the one hand, it relates to their appetite for new mines, but equally it relates to their capacity to pay higher prices. So it's a forward indicator of their willingness to um, entertain much higher pricing regimes going forward. And it also tells you that whilst the spot price might give you one data point, which is what it's been traded at at a particular time, it's also telling you that the um, more opaque data set, which is what the calculated portfolio value of these term contracts is, it's definitely gone up because you've got aspiring producers who are happy to enter into these deals. So we, you get a, a kind of a calculated reported term contracting price, uh, but it doesn't give you a lot of information as an investor. Um, it just tells you typically that it's at a premium to the spot price. Uh, the real indicator is when aspiring producers start to enter into these contracts because their board is sufficiently comfortable that there's X amount of value in these contracts that they're prepared to now commit legally to delivering this uranium going into the future. That's something to watch. In terms of the speed of that evolution and therefore the volume that we can expect in 2023, first of all, it's going to depend on price growth in the spot market and uh, the obvious pricing pressure that that puts on to term contract negotiations. Uh, but it's also going to depend on the utilities levels of distraction in other parts of the fuel cycle. Um, the reason why predominantly term contracts were written in this very streamlined, easy type of approach that I described at the outset is because utilities are utterly distracted on securing other components in the nuclear fuel cycle, most significantly enrichment and conversion right now. Only once they've actually removed that distraction and secured those part of the components will they then look uh, further upstream to uranium 
And we need to see that independently of price evolution before we're going to see the next contracting cycle develop. And that requires a lot of analysis of what's happening in enrichment and what's happening in conversion, which then takes us back to the discussion we had about bifurcated markets and the availability of Russian material and what sort of effect that will have on the utilities decision making. So not an easy one, Andrew, and sorry for the long answer to that, but hopefully there's something there for listeners to understand that you do need to take a slightly more nuanced view than just simply looking at the pure volumes and saying that's good or that's bad or that's great. Yeah, I mean, it certainly indicates a bit of direction and definitely the improving numbers are good. As you know, it's very difficult to get all the data to separate out these various demographics, you know, new client contracting, existing flexes, all the different things that we've seen options being exercised. It is definitely indicative of sector health, the SWU price, the conversion price, <laughs> the lack of infrastructure and capacity at the conversion and enrichment segments of this market. You have to be excited for that in a way from the investment side that this has to, to be able to get that attention, it has to be price. And we're certainly seeing that transpire right now in the fuel cycle, and it's yet to come for uranium in a bigger way. Not to say an uptick from $17, $18 a pound uranium to where we are today isn't a good thing. We've certainly seen improvements here, but there is a lot more work to do on the upside. The comments that you make with respect to just being able to get these contracts underpinned with new developments and then the risk profile of utilities, when you look at the market for suppliers, Brandon, we've seen risk in majors. We've seen risk in just being able to get mines up and running. We've seen the Kazataprom risk profile come out here recently. So the uncertainty and the risk is very high. That's where some of these new juniors come in to help, I think, alleviate, at least diversify, even though there is risk. So we'll see what happens and transpires here. And one of the other things I would note is Bannerman has been reluctant to enter into term contracts at prices that are maybe entry-level pricing, if you will, or pricing that is difficult to justify. We've seen some other peers out there do this, but what is Bannerman's view with respect to pulling the trigger on term contracting when it makes sense versus some of these other projects that have taken down some contracts that you and I would probably look at our information and consider in the best foot forward approach with some of these and say, yeah, these guys might be breaking even. We'll see in the cash flow statements, but what's your position with respect to committing Bannerman under a term contract? We've been at this project for 15 years, Andrew, and uh, what I've strived to do is ensure that our shareholders understand that we're prepared to be patient longer uh, to ensure that we get a sustainable result for the mine and therefore our host communities and all of our stakeholders in Namibia, but also an appropriate return for shareholders and investors and financiers. Um, it's interesting what you say about conversion and enrichment prices or SWU prices. They're a fabulous trailer for the uranium movie that's soon to be released, aren't they? I mean, they, they are a look forward as to what we can expect with uranium and conversion prices are up circa 400%. Enrichment prices are up circa 400%. You know, utilities are paying that because they need to, and they're almost paying it willingly at the moment because the competitiveness of other energy sources have been totally blown out of the water. So these prices, when you look at it as 
the contribution to electricity cost in a nuclear power plant are minuscule compared to the blowouts in coal, in gas, even in um, storage or renewables, the differences that we've seen in recent times. Um, and that just underlies the price inelasticity of nuclear power to the individual components of the fuel cycle. So the sector does have the capacity to allow that, allow the uranium movie to play out as a sequel to conversion and enrichment. It's important for the sector and its overall resilience that our mine and other mines come in to provide that supply. So we're prepared to be patient until we see appropriate pricing that reflects the level of patience that our shareholders have shown over the last 15 years. And I say that in comparison to some other companies where they've got other factors that probably put them on the timeline in a more acute way. Sometimes there's licensing factors uh, or other forms of social licensing within country that put them under pressure. Sometimes it's their own setting of expectations that puts them under pressure. Uh, sometimes it's management's ambitions that puts them under pressure. And we've been very, very careful uh, ever since I've come into this CEO role seven years ago, we've been very careful to make sure that we don't start setting ourselves up or don't start painting ourselves in any corners so that we can utilize our very nuanced understanding of this sector to correctly time our entry for the best interests of our shareholders and other stakeholders. It's a tactful way to go about it, and I think it's the right way to go about it. Align with your views on this. Let's go to the chemical Westinghouse Brookfield deal. Thoughts on that arrangement and what impacts does it have on the juniors? So first of all, I love it. I think it's a masterstroke by Cameco. It does change the nature of the company, of course, and there'll always be secondary impacts that Cameco is managing with that. Um, makes it less pure play uranium. But, you know, Cameco have already been in the fuel cycle for decades. So it's not as dramatic as a pure, pure uranium company going into uh, other elements of the fuel cycle. They're simply enhancing that side of their business. In terms of its impact on the sector, very, very positive uh, for a couple of reasons, really. The first reason that's astonishing but shouldn't be is that Brookfield Renewable, which on some measures is the largest investor in uh, private investor in renewables in the world, uh, have now invested in nuclear. As I say, it shouldn't be surprising because nuclear, as you pointed out, it's got the lowest cycle impacts across a range of measures, including carbon, even compared with solar and wind. Uh, so it, it doesn't surprise you and me, and it shouldn't surprise people, but it has surprised people. There's no doubt about that. And that's now opening the door to vast amounts of green money that has had to stand up and take notice of what Brookfield Renewables has done by funding this deal and investing in 51% of Westinghouse. Um, you can't overstate the importance of that going forward. It has the potential to be a paradigm shift in the availability of capital to this sector, and in particular to the nuclear fuel cycle, not just the construction of reactors around the world. Um, now, the second thing that it's done is uh, it's secured Westinghouse's future as a nuclear services provider. 
And that's very important to the sector in a range of different ways. Like for example, Westinghouse is the lead fabricator to start displacing Russian fabrication for VVER reactors in Central Europe. That's just important for the stability of Europe and gives those nuclear utilities options. Uh, they don't have to go to Russian fabrication to supply their late Soviet era reactors, but it also gives them the option to buy their uranium where they want. It doesn't have to come from Cameco, whereas the Russian deals were always very much bundled up. So from a new producer such as a Tango uh, and Bannerman, that means that that has broadened our market um, with the the opening up of those, um, in particular, those Central European utilities. And what it's also done in a more broad sense is it's hit the news wires. Like it is big news. Um, generalist investors are seeing this across their tickers. Uh, it's obviously had a big PR machine behind it. Cameco is the market leader. And as much as we are a minuscule little sector, it does add balance sheet, it adds liquidity, it adds oomph to the market leader in the uranium sector. Um, and I think also, look, it's going to change the way ultimately that Cameco um, does business in respect of being a uranium producer, in respect of being a miner. And I think that will open up opportunities for smaller companies such as ourselves. I share a lot of those same points and we've discussed this uh, a couple times in our letter and an upcoming letter we'll be discussing it again further details and ideas surrounding this. Brookfield Partners removal of Westinghouse from bankruptcy in 2018, I think was the initial thinking with respect to the group there and their opinion on nuclear. And then of course it's materialized down the road here now at uh, today's transaction. Bring up another point, the Rosatom order book for turnkey nuclear is absolutely incredible. Even in spite of the war, compared to anybody else with their turnkey reactor program worldwide. This provides the competition back to the West a bit with this transaction, creates competition with Orano. And so I think it is very good. It shines a light on the sector. It brings forth some questions with respect to who's going to supply uranium in the future down the road here. And I think that's a big opportunity for juniors to step into that space as well and you know show their worth, if you will. On a related topic, Brandon, we've seen some interesting mergers out there. This one included Chemical Westinghouse Brookfield. A few other transactions happen out there in the sector. Any comments at this point with respect to M&A activity? Well, it's good that it started. I think um, long on the record saying that the uranium sector has been its own worst enemy through being so splintered. When you've got a large splintering of particularly early stage projects, because of the pure market mechanism and where they get their capital from, i.e. stock exchanges, um, the messaging tends to be highly optimistic. And the utilities receive that messaging without a sufficient level of scepticism. Uh, it's a bit different once they're uh, advanced projects like ours, like uh, you can't do a definitive feasibility study credibly and have that optimistic glean on it. It really meets the reality test once you put a definitive feasibility study out. But when it comes to the early stage, a utility could be easily forgiven for looking at all of the press releases and think, wow, we're gonna have so much uranium coming down the chute at us in 10, 15 years time that we don't need to worry. Now, as mining investors, we fundamentally understand that it's nothing like that. 
and that it's only a tiny proportion of those stories that will ever see pounds in the can, that'll ever even make it to the advanced definitive stage that it's taken us 15 years to get to. Um, and so the consolidation is very, very important because obviously the cream rises to the top and we start to see the building of pipelines and portfolios um, in place of potentially competing projects. So I like it. I think it's good for the sector. I think the sector needs more of it. And ultimately, it's good for both sides of the equation because utilities won't be dealing with one-off mine lives. Um, not every mine's got the luxury of ours of um, offering multi-decade production that will match off the life operating spans of many nuclear reactors. Um, a short-term mine is, is a short-term supply that doesn't match well with the demand profile in this sector. So building pipelines is one way that utilities can engage with a counterparty that will be there for them in 30 years' time. In terms of, I suppose, our view of consolidation, it's evolved a lot with the advancement of a tango and in particular, the repositioning of a tango when we reduced the scale from 20 million tonnes to 8 million tonnes. So for people new to the Bannerman story, uh, for many years we were developing a tango at the largest viable scale. And that would have seen an average of 7.2 million pounds per annum come into the market. Now that's enough for 17 to 18 gigawatt style reactors. So, you know, we were ready and willing to be a very large player in the market, but it came with a big capital cost and that capital cost had a, the effect of eroding investor confidence during the bear market. Um, it was multiples of our market capitalization at that stage. And what we started doing in 2019 is looking at how we could reduce the size of the project. And we were very fortunate in one attribute in particular, and that's that our all body is outcropping, it sticks out of the ground. So in the early stages, in the first 60 million pounds of production, uh, we've got a very low stripping ratio. And that meant that we could defy the typical bulk tonnage mining mantra, which is bigger, gives you more economies of scale, makes it cheaper. We could work within that smaller stripping ratio and actually produce a far more economic project at a smaller scale, which can then be expanded. So that's had two primary implications when we talk about consolidation. Um, the first implication is that we've now got in the Atango 8 project, we've got a definitive feasibility study that's fresh off um, out of the engineering firm. So it's viable, it's current, it hasn't been eroded by price inflation or uncertainty or any of that. So that's current and it's staying current through our front end engineering and design process that we're engaged in at the moment. And it's viable, it stands on its own two feet. We don't need consolidation as a company to bring that to market. The other thing is, unlike most other projects, we've got an inbuilt optionality in the form of expanding our own project. So if we want to increase our production, uh, in a few years time, well, we could acquire another asset uh, and increase production from a different production centre, or we could increase production at a tango. Uh, and we know the ore is there. Uh, under our previous development scenario, 20 million tonne large scale, we defined 130 million pounds of reserve within well over 200 million pounds of resource. So we know the materials there, we just need to mine it faster. That puts us in a 
in a strong position, Andrew, because it means that we can we can be patient, but we can also be extremely disciplined about what proportion of the Atango value proposition would we be willing to share in order to acquire another asset. I think with the definitive feasibility study really showing the viability of Atango and demonstrating to all of our stakeholders, both in the investment community, but also in the nuclear industry, that a Tango is a viable project that will come to market. And we've now built the team to do that. Uh, it means that we're in a really strong position when it comes to assessing potential opportunities and remaining disciplined because we're not under any external pressure or internal pressure whatsoever to do a deal. We're not going to find ourselves in a position where people are telling us we must do a deal. We will do what is absolutely right for our stakeholders, including our shareholders and the project. And that's a real nice position to be in. You know, I've, um, many of your listeners would know that I've got an M&A background. I was an M&A lawyer for many years. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen bad deals done because of internal or external pressures. And I've seen good deals done with companies that are very patient and are doing those deals based on a well-conceived strategy that has a disciplined um, fundamentals approach to value and synergies. I think that's well said. The market seems to agree here over the last couple of years. I wouldn't say all of them are good, but certainly there's been a few that have been very tactful. And I agree with that position and the fact also the ability to expand this project once a Tango waits up and running, what the potential for expansion is the next phase, if you will. And I think that's important to point out. Okay, let's get into Bannerman in just a moment. I want to move into Namibia and then we'll drill down to uh, the Bannerman level. Namibia specific news item came out in December 2022. The government of Namibia halted a project of Uranium One due to environmental concerns. Brandon, is this an indicator of policy towards Russia or do you see it really as just a project specific matter that gets resolved? It's project specific. It's in a very new discovery. It's well away from the existing uranium production base in the Orongo region. And it's in a very different environment um, politically and uh, ecologically to where uranium is mined in Namibia at the moment. So first of all, it's project specific. Um, the other thing that it really says about Namibia is Namibia absolutely takes environmental constraints and environmental responsibility seriously. And there's a community-based concern, which government has now shared through its recent actions, uh, that not enough environmental work has been done on this uh, potential project. So a little bit of background to help your listeners. So Namibia has always been low-grade bulk tonnage open-cut mining. Um, that is what's built such a successful uranium sector over more than 45 years in, in Namibia. And together with diamonds, uranium has been the most important economic contributor to not only Namibia's mining sector, but also its capacity to earn foreign reserves. And um, with tourism and agriculture, uh, uh, they are the most important industries in the entire country. That's always been a particular form of mining. The social support for that is very high. Uh, everyone's seen the Rossing uranium mine consistently deliver benefits to the country, to the host community. There's been no detriment. The things that people are worried about with 
the scaremongering in other countries, well, they've had 45 minutes to realise that it's just that scaremongering in Namibia. So the political and social support is very strong. And Rio's legacy has been an exemplary environmental performance, which has also got the local country comfortable that, yes, uranium mining can be done properly and appropriately without an environmental cost. So enter Uranium One, who make a new discovery. It's quite deep. And not only a new discovery, but it's a new form of mining to Namibia which is in situ recovery. Now, it's not new for Uranium One. You know, they've got extensive experience in Kazakhstan and Russia. Um, and in many respects, they were the market leaders in this form of extraction, particularly with acid. Uh, so for them, it's quite normal. And perhaps that's where uh, they failed to read the in-country tea leaves sufficiently well. So it's a new form of mining that people have not had 45 years to get comfortable with. There's a lot of suspicion about ISR uh, because it runs counterintuitive to people's understanding of mining. You know, you're putting acid into an aquifer and needing to clean it up afterwards. And then the other factor that's quite unique is Namibia is a highly arid country. Um, most of the country is desert. And this is in a farming community uh, where the Erongo uranium mines are including ours, uh, it's an unproductive desert. It's got ecological value, it's got tourism value, but there's no agricultural or societal value from the, the land itself. Now we go into a mining process that interacts with aquifers, even if it passes through an aquifer, but otherwise interacts with aquifers in a farming community, in a country where water is your number one point of anxiety. Overlay onto that, that Ros Adam came in with a government facing approach rather than a community facing approach. And uh, I think they would admit themselves that um, they didn't get early enough into the process of community engagement, which allowed a vacuum in terms of understanding to develop. It certainly promoted suspicion and it hasn't been helped by obvious global events that we've already discussed. So it's a very much a project specific case here. Um, it doesn't, in a headline, it might seem to connect to the rest of the Namibian uranium sector. It doesn't in any way at all. If anything, it should be taken as a positive because uh, you can't just go government to government in Namibia and get your way. The community has a genuine say, the environment and environmental requirements have a genuine say. The precautionary principle in environmental management, which is if you don't know, you have to figure it out no matter how long it takes, has prevailed here. So ultimately what it does is it boosts the credibility of the processes being undertaken by Bannerman and other companies operating in Namibia. Um, to, to answer your original question, look, I don't think it's, it's an anti-Russia thing. I don't think it's got any real direct connection with global events in the Ukraine war. It just happens to be amplified by the lost in translation type connection between a Russian operator and the local community. Yeah, I think that's good context, Brandon. And I think that really kind of wraps it up pretty well with respect to the issues at hand and of course the, the project dynamics. Let's get into Bannerman. First, recent news, Chief Operating Officer appointment, Gavin Chamberlain, 
and an important move in my view with respect to operatorship, which is an important piece of this business. Your comments on the appointment of Gavin. Oh, it's epic. Like I couldn't be happier. Um, obviously I've been talking to Gavin for a long period of time. He is a class act. He is a world-class project builder with three decades of experience in Southern Africa. He hasn't been pigeonholed in one form of the business the whole time. He's worked for the owner's teams, spent the last five years as the chief operating officer, um, developing a very large potash project in Congo. Um, but he's also led EPCM contractors. So our single largest contractory counterparty over the next three years, he's led them. And in fact, it was in that role that he was in charge of the build of the Husab uranium mine in Namibia, um, one of the largest developments in Africa in the mining sector, and certainly the largest single investment into Namibia. Uh, so he's got that on top of all of his credentials as a project builder. Uh, he's also just uh, out of pure luck to us, knows Namibia extremely well and knows uranium extremely well and knows building uranium mines uh, similar to Atango's very, very well. Um, but as an added bonus, he's also had um, leadership roles in mining contractors in the past. So the other side of our business that's very important, which is the mining contracting, the contracting of the mining process, uh, he's got deep experience in understanding that. Um, look, add to that at a personal level, uh, he's awesome. Um, he's uh, very, very well liked. When we were talking to um, people inside the industry uh, as we were assessing bringing Gavin on, one of the um, descriptions that were given to me was he's got the most powerful black book in Southern Africa. And that's important to us because we're going to be building a workforce. We're going to be bringing in key hires. We want to do things with a certain level of culture and we want to be an absolute leader. So to introduce Gavin into our company and have the endorsement of someone of his caliber, choosing Bannerman, you know, choosing a junior, uh, an aspiring uranium junior, I'd hope that that would be a strong signal to our stakeholders of how strong Bannerman is and how strong our vision and our asset is. Um, but by the same token, it adds tremendous value to us um, because of his capacity to now assist our operational management in building the project and building the team. So, Andrew, I couldn't be happier. Uh, he starts tomorrow. I'll be seeing him in Cape Town on where he's based on Sunday and Monday next week, and we'll be spending the next two weeks together onboarding. Um, so it's a big step forward. And, and I think in a broader sense, Andrew, what we can now say, now that we've got that project builder piece of the puzzle locked in, in Gavin's form. We've got very strong operational experience. Uh, we've got strong and deep uranium credentials that go back decades through Mike Leach and Werner Evolt in Namibia. We understand Namibia extremely well. Um, we've got a CEO, i.e. me, who's lived in country for more than five years. Uh, and now we've got a, an expert project builder who's got the biggest uranium mine in Africa to his name. You can't say that we don't have a world-class uranium team now. And for a junior of the size of Bannerman, I think it's truly a strength that we've got. And there are a number of voices in this sector that point correctly to the fact that there is a very thin level of capability in uranium. It, it just hasn't had any 
human investment over decades. And so building a genuinely credible team is a very, very difficult prospect in the uranium sector. And we have one of very few of those teams now, particularly now that we've added the final piece to the puzzle um, through a very strong project builder in the form of Gavin Chamberlain. I think this is great and there's gonna be a lot of value come out of this and I'm excited to see what additional staffing comes up here. And this obviously is a big piece to be able to dedicate that role to further bringing on the staff to get this actually underway at site. Before that, we've got the challenge of financing, which falls back on your plate, Brandon, which is going to be also exciting to see how you move this forward. And I think this adds a lot of confidence with respect to the investor community, and the seriousness of Bannerman moving this forward, not just doing the classic, you know, put our best foot forward and hope someone comes and picks us up, given what you said about talent, that you have to carry these forward with the talent that you can obtain. And the team that's already there, I don't think people should discount your capabilities and a number of other folks on the board and also the management team. Let's stop at that for a moment. And I want to come into the Atango A definitive feasibility study that was put out. I want to say it's saturated the market for about two months now. Talk about the results. And also, why don't you bring this back to the pilot plant that was constructed and the testing that happened there with respect to backstopping the credibility of this DFS? Thanks, Andrew, for bringing this up. So we'd released a DFS in December of 2022, so roughly two months ago. Going back to our earlier conversation, this is a definitive feasibility study on the 8 million tonne per annum development scenario, the initial development scenario. When it comes to an expanded scale, we've got a DFS that was done in 2015. Now, obviously, some of that's out of date, but all of the test work level, all of the technical work, all of the resource drilling, all of that was done at that much larger scale. Um, so the expansion scenario that we talked about has had definitive level work done so that we know we could expand to that level. It's been a game changer for our company for the reasons we talked about before. It's a development pathway that gets us into production much sooner with lower development hurdles. Uh, it's economically viable at lower uranium prices. We've still got all of the leverage and the torque to uranium prices because of the scale of our deposit and that expansion capacity. So it sets us up in, in a very, very strong way for what uranium is going to deliver over the next six to 18 months. It enhances our leverage. And um, now that we've got it, at a definitive level, we're in rarefied air, Andrew. There are very few projects around the world of this scale that have a definitive feasibility study per se, but in particular that have got one that hasn't gone stale on the shelf. And in such a dynamic capital cost and operating cost environment, they go stale on the shelf in, in a year these days. Okay. So in terms of the numbers, the average production initially would be three and a half million pounds per annum. So that's enough for six to seven conventional scale nuclear reactors. So six to seven gigawatts or six to 7,000 megawatts of electricity. So we're a big player in the energy um, industry globally as a result of having this project. The initial mine lasts 15 years, but because of the enormous resource size, I expect we'd be much like the Rossing uranium mine. So when Rio developed that in the mid 70s, it had a 16 year mine life. It's been going for 45 years. 
it's got another 10 years of resources if they choose to extend. That's what I would expect a tango would be like. And we know that there's more than 200 million pounds of uranium there. Uh, what we've been able to do is um, largely contain our capital costs in a very dynamic environment. And you don't have to find many data points at all to see that uh, most definitive feasibility studies released in the last six months have had huge blows. Um, we managed to keep it to about a 15% increase, and that included some further de-risking, a $10 million investment in a proposed um, asset handling facility, for example, that will produce other benefits as well. But importantly, we were able to reduce our operating costs by about 5%. So essentially, uh, we were able to maintain the economics of our August 2021 PFS in the face of an industry that's got runaway costs in many different respects, including for producers such as you know, the biggest in the world, because Adam Prop. Very, very happy with the result, highly credible result. Um, the lead uh, engineering firm was Wood PLC, prominent in the nuclear sector, one of the leading uh, mining engineering firms around the world, certainly the leader in Southern Africa. At a holistic level, Andrew, really, really happy. Um, so what does it mean for economics? Well, at that initial mine life of 15 years and at that initial production of three and a half million pounds, we end up with a life of mine stripping ratio of 2.22. So that's low, but it starts very low, as I described before. Uh, with our heat bleach demonstration plant that you mentioned, we've demonstrated over operation that spans years a consistent and fast leaching in the plant of 93%. Now we've applied conservatism to that because this is a DFS. And so we've used a processing yield of 87.8% with low acid consumption. So that gives us 53 million pounds of total production within a mining reserve of about 60 million pounds. We've used a base case price of $65 a pound and you know, I'd remind people that the spot price touched $63 uh, less than a year ago. So we think that's a very reasonable assumption to base your baseline economics on. Cash operating costs are $35 a pound and a pre-production capital of 317 million US dollars. Um, that delivers at that base pricing, a post-tax NPV of $209 million. Um, and that's at a discount rate of 8% and an IRR at 17%. That's the minimum incentivization that we would require, a contract portfolio that balances that out, out over time at $65. Um, but you, know, you would have gleaned from the early part of our discussion that that's not where I have my sights. And so we published a upside case assumption of $80 a pound, which I think is far more realistic based on my analysis of the sector and what is required to bring on sufficient supply, even in the short term, to meet this uh, growing sector deficit. So at that $80, what it does to our economics is that, well, it increases the cash flow by 69% because of that leverage factor that we've got. You know, that all goes to the bottom line and government royalties. So it increases the IRR to just short of 25%. Uh, the NPV explodes from 209 million to 435 million US dollars post-tax. And our leverage 
continues to increase exponentially from there because every consequent dollar less royalties and taxes goes to our bottom line. If you then start to, as an investor, start to work with whatever upside scenarios you're working with, um, the volume and the expansion capacity and the known pounds in the ground mean that uh, we still maintain extraordinary leverage to the uranium price, particularly when it's calculated as a proportion of our current enterprise value. I think those are pretty good results despite the market conditions and of course the cost escalations we've seen in the mining sector i mean you've seen let's dust off some of these other reports that have been held by some of these other development juniors that haven't been touched as far as revisions i think it's pretty safe that you can tack on 35 percent easily without breaking a sweat most of these numbers aren't going to come down the nature of this business the nature of the markets here and, and the currency health that we're dealing with here i don't think is conducive to significant reductions. Yes, we might see a little bit of comebacks on some prices in the short term, but I don't see that uh, it's going to hold and overall costs are going to be higher. The $80 price point, more than viable. We've had some varying opinions on this, but definitely that this would move quite a bit higher from here. With respect to the reception of the DFS, I understand there was a divergence on the reception, depending on the investor demographic we're talking about, whether it's a, an institution or maybe a, a retail investor and the views that came out on this. Talk about that reception in the market and then also contracting profile, how you guys would approach filling the book on this project based on the phase one, the Tango 8, if you will and what portion of that book you guys might leave open for opportunistic events moving forward. Yeah, so the professional investor reception was very strong. So our institutional shareholders, the analysts who cover us, other institutional investors that I've been talking to, uh, you know, their sentiment was very similar to the way that I described it. It's a great result, highly credible, puts us into rarefied space uh, in the sector. And it's a very solid asset that's got uh, credible, honest numbers that uh, from a professional investor perspective, you can now judge the project and its prospects on. So that was all very positive. They liked the way that we presented the information. We, we presented a lot of information. We disclosed very openly. It's easy for an analyst to check her, his or her own model because of the level of disclosure that we've provided. And that was all um, ticks in the box. I didn't get a single negative comment from any of the institutional and professional investors I spoke to. Um, when you say a divergence, it's a, if you were to judge our retail investor community simply by the comments on Twitter, then maybe there was a divergence, but um, I'm not sure that that's quite right to do. I think people who've got an ax to grind tend to become more vocal when your share price goes down and the whole sector was in a period of decline at the end of last year and we happened to release our dfs on a day when the whole sector was down several percent cameco was down more than five percent um, in the lead from north america that we received onto the asx and so our share price went down the same amount that market leader paladin's share price went down so there was no correlation between our DFS and the share price. But of course, what that did is anyone who had negative comments to say, um, perhaps because they were invested in a competitor, for example, um, felt that they were able to come out and criticize the DFS, not on the basis of what the DFS was, but on the basis of what their screen told them 
And as I've just said, when we were tracking the market leader, well, that's utterly irrelevant. So I'm not sure that there was a divergence of opinion amongst retail investors. The retail investors that I've had feedback from, you know, they might not have had the sophistication to judge it in the way that professional investors, but I think our messaging was good enough that they were able to realize that it was a really good result. You are also getting your own feedback, Andrew. So, um, you know, you might have something to add to that, but by and large, it's been really well received and it sets us up now very, very well for what we want to deliver in 2023. And again, I come back to this concept that we're in a very unique place with the position that we've got in this industry is shared with less than a handful of other companies across the Western world. And that's special. And that puts us in a very strong position going into the dynamics for 2023 and on that we talked about at the start of this podcast. Yeah. I think that there was just a bit of confusion. Everybody's got their different motivations, right, Brandon? I mean, some folks will talk down Bannerman just to get shares cheaper if they can. I mean, it's been tried. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes people look at this and they forget that what about phase two and three? What is the upside? And sometimes people don't see that in a revised, focused in on one piece of the ore body at surface don't understand and don't see the dynamics surrounding what that project is from a starter standpoint and what that project leads into with respect to the client base, with respect to the ramp up, the scale up, and how you're able to finance subsequent phases off of a smaller project. And so a lot of dynamics there. And of course, you know, the sentiment's up and down like a roller coaster every day. And if you're on Twitter, which uh, don't spend too much time there, you know, some of these folks can't be satisfied, sadly. You have to look at the whole picture. And for us looking at this, I thought this was despite the conditions in the market. Yeah, of course, uh, to some degree, there's always best foot forward approach, but I think you guys have brought this forward in a way that it is a DFS. Now you've set the bar for when you guys move into construction and financing, you guys will continue to have to deliver, but there's always gonna be people that are gonna talk it down a bit. When the price starts running even further and excitement builds up and deliveries actually happen on the ground, it's going to be a difference. But talk just briefly about how you see the production profile being underpinned with term contracts a bit and also how you leave this open. Yeah, it's it's a really good point because you can introduce optionality into financing and marketing a project in a number of ways. So the bluntest way you do it is you leave a proportion of your production uncontracted, either to be uh, contracted closer to production or closer to commissioning, um, or to be sold into the spot market at the time of delivery. And now the other way, and this is where there's a bit more magic and a bit more value to be created, is in the shape that you give your contract portfolio. And this goes back to our earlier discussion about what long-term contracts even are. In its simplest form, a long-term contract is a base price escalated contract. So, you know, let's say $65 that then gets escalated according to US CPI each year. Um, that's its simplest possible formulation. And then all of the other terms in the long-term contract are around delivery timing and the, um, uh, the profile of the deliveries, how many thousand pounds per quarter, all of that sort of stuff, delivery terms. Um, now, less and less contracts are in that very blunt, simple form. Um, what they tend to do is have a market-related component and uh, that can be formulated in many different ways. 
And for a new producer such as ourselves, it would be important that we've got a floor. Uh, the financier would expect to see that floor. And in return, you would typically grant some form of a cap or some form of a ceiling. Now, the width that we can place between that floor and that ceiling gives us a lot of that optionality. Um, but also the timing at which we enter into the contracts gives a lot of that optionality. The longer we wait at this point, um, the more we will see those floors and ceilings as a band shift upwards. And we've got that extra layer that you've described, which is really important, which is significant timing control on when we escalate the production profile and expand our project. We would do that when we're already delivering into existing contracts and we've already got existing customer relationships with the utilities where we can have a direct conversation with them saying, look, you know, uh, in 12 months time, we can start a cutback that will increase our production rate two years hence to this, for example. Um, would you like us to do that? And if so, let's talk about the economics that are going to incentivize us to do that. And we're in such a strong position there to not only service the customer's needs, but also protect our own interests. Because if they're not prepared to negotiate at the right economic interests, well, we say, okay, well, we just won't make that decision in 12 months time and we'll keep producing at our current level according to our current contract arrangements. So when I drew the distinction between having uh, an expansion project versus a second asset that you've consolidated, um, I can make the argument that it's far more valuable to have this built-in expansion project rather than a second asset that has to be built from scratch or even acquired as a producing asset because it gives us so much optionality and so much control uh, and therefore a, a stronger position to interact with our customers at the time. Um, so the exact proportion of, first of all, how much of our production would we contract and how much would we leave open for future dealing. That'll be determined in consultation with our financiers um, and will be determined by the form of financing that we take. Um, and then there's a secondary question as to what the shape of the contracting portfolio looks like. Uh, and that's a far more complicated formula and a far more complicated model, um, which also is where a lot of the the valuable IP in our company resides. And that's where we will uh, produce a return for shareholders on the our investment in developing a very nuanced understanding of this sector over many years. Good answers. I appreciate that, Brandon. I think that's a pretty good way to approach this. Let's just discuss briefly the, the current capital structure at Bannerman. Just give us a brief on the current cash position at the company talk about the shares outstanding, the ownership, and then also for some of our demographic in the audience, looking at financings, but uh, I suspect there's probably no need to finance this year, but that's always a question people like to hear about, especially those check writers out there. Go ahead and give us a little bit of information on this. So, you know, we're in a very strong cash position. We started or we ended um, the DFS process with almost $50 million in the bank. So we're delighted with that. And we've been very careful that that doesn't wear a hole in our pocket, um, Australian dollars I'm talking. Um, so that gives us 
the money to continue with the front-end engineering and design, move into detailed design if we need to, certainly to finance or engage in the financing marketing work streams. So there's absolutely no pressing need to raise money. Ultimately, when we come to uh, final investment decision, that's going to depend on how we actually structure the financing. So if we take the one scenario, which is a conventional financing of the project, well, of course, that's going to have a blend of equity financing and debt. There are other ways of financing this project that are, have been used in the sector in the past, such as offtake financing, advances on offtake, royalty stream financing. Uh, we don't have any external royalties, only government royalties, so we've got that door left open. So we've got levers that we can use to supplant the equity component of a financing structure. Um, so there, it, it shouldn't just be an assumption that investors make that we will need to raise 40% of the equity. And look, the other thing that you really need to point out is we would be financing into a much stronger uranium market. So the other uh, miscalculation that an investor might make is they might assume that it's X that needs to be equity financed for the development of this project at the current share price. Now that's very unlikely. It's likely to be a substantially higher share price and therefore a substantially lower effect if we go down that path. Um, the sector is particularly well structured for alternative forms of financing. So we've got a lot more potential to strike a deal that's different to a conventional financing where you raise 40% of the equity and you get 60% of the debt, for example. Uh, so that's something that we're working on and uh, we're acutely aware of equity holders' interests in this whole equation. And it's something that we are targeting and we think there's a lot of potential for. The balance sheet's very strong. We've got no debt. Uh, we've got that strong cash position. We've got 150 million shares on issue. So um, there's lots of capacity for that leverage that we've talked about to reflect in our share price as confidence comes back into the sector and as uh, that um, macroeconomic perspective in the uranium sector starts to flow back into equities. So I think it's compelling um, and I certainly don't think there's a financing overhang that investors need to worry about. Uh, when we come to financing the project, we'll do it in a very sensible way that's very mindful of equity holders' interests. And there are scenarios that don't involve an equity raising that uh, are still out there that we're working on. I appreciate how you guys view the equity component of this, which is important for investors. And then also some of the unconventional comments as well, which I think is, it'll be interesting to see the creativity that comes out of that, Brandon. During mid-2022, Bannerman invested in a small rare earth focus company in Namibia, Namibia Critical Metals listed on the TSXV. Talk about this transaction just briefly and how this will benefit Bannerman shareholders as well as synergies with a Tango 8. Yeah, so it's actually very exciting. Because it's a very small transaction compared to our size, uh, we have been careful not to uh, promote it too broadly. That's the job of the TSXV listed company, Namibia Critical Metals. Um, but it's nonetheless very interesting and something I'm very happy to talk about. So Loft, NMI has the Loftal project in Namibia. It's a Xenotime project which is very unusual in the Western world because it's enriched with dysprosium and terbium. 
Um, now, for people who aren't deep into REEs, get a heavy rare earth with yttrium and one or two other um, minor HREEs. Now, the reason why dysprosium and terbium are so important is together with um, NDPR, they are the permanent battery metals. As investors, we mainly hear about NDPR because that's what most uh, REE companies have got, if they're lucky. Um, very few REE companies have got the heavies in the form of dysprosium and terbium, so they've obviously not inclined to promote them and talk about them. But they're every bit as vital as NDPR and far rarer. So there are only two advanced stage dysprosium terbium um, xenotime deposits in the Western world. The others, Brown's Range, held by Northern Minerals in Australia. So Loftal's very unique in that respect. The fact that it's in Namibia, it's only a few hours drive from our Atango project uh, is important for us. We've known the asset for a long time, known it well. We know the, the management well, we know the in-country people well, we knew the shareholder well that we purchased the stake from, the strategic stake. Um, so for us, it was a low risk transaction. And importantly, it's financed by Jogmex. So it's financed by um, the Japanese uh, industry consortia into the future. And that means that it, first of all, it doesn't have a distraction risk for us. We can essentially be a passive investor in this company. But secondly, it doesn't have a development capital risk that's going to come back to us. It's not going to compete with a Tango. Um, its financing pathway is very, very clear from here. And uh, the NMI, the company that we've invested in, will find itself in the very fortunate position of having a 19% um, free carried interest at the end with all of that financing risk and responsibility passed over to Japanese industry. We think it's really exciting. We, we think it benefits us, first of all, and specifically Tango. First of all, it means that we are a player in not one, but two major resource developments of national significance in Namibia. Um, we're the largest shareholder now in the Loftal deposit, and of course, we're the 95% shareholder in a Tango. That increases our influence in country, it increases our responsibility, and it doubles down on all of the very positive attributes that we've grown in country in Bannerman over the last 15 years, um, right through community synergies and um, some of the um, community programs that we've tested and uh, developed in Bannerman, and now we've passed through to Loftal in Namibia. What it also does is it puts us on the strategic map ahead of various strategic bodies around the world looking more closely at uranium. So what do I mean by that, Andrew? Well, uh, rare earths and in particular heavy rare earths, dysprosium and terbium, utterly dominated by Chinese, as most people would know, and therefore they're getting a lot of airtime amongst various government and semi-government think tanks and agencies who are looking very hard at where large economies are exposed in a natural resources sense. And it doesn't get more critical than dysprosium and terbium. I really mean that. Like if China shuts the door on that, major industries will be lost overnight because there is no substantial supply or supply of any substance really coming out of the Western world. If I put that in perspective, the pilot plant at Brown's Range produces as much dysprosium as Linus does. So market leader, 
they, you know, they just don't have a lot of dysprosium in their REE profile. So for that reason, it's critically important and it's on this project is on the radar of all of these government agencies that are thinking about where could China have their industry by the balls. Now, it's really handy for us as an important future uranium producer to be popping up onto their radars because there will come a time when their focus shifts from these more acute critical minerals to, oh, well, we've got to run our economy on energy and a large part of that energy is nuclear and gee, we've only just realized there's a big supply deficit and where's the uranium going to come from because we can't buy it from Russia anymore. That's helpful um, for the development of our project. Now, something that we suspected but couldn't bank on when we were entered into the transaction was we had a strong view that at some point Japan would need to pivot in their nuclear industry and that relationship with JobMet would put us kind of in the pound seats to um, enter contracting relationships with Japanese utilities. To our pleasant surprise, that pivot appears to have happened a lot earlier than we would have given ourselves credit for predicting. So Japan has clearly turned on a die in terms of its nuclear policy at a government level. And we're seeing clear evidence for the first time in years that that's actually translating to action on the ground and real progress with the restart of their reactors. So I likened it to it's the equivalent of being in the box, uh, in the corporate box for an entire season of the baseball or whatever your sport is with JogMec, because we're sitting there with them. I've been to site with them a couple of times since we've made the investment in an asset that's crucially important to them. So it puts us in a very good space when it comes to developing our project and talking to Japanese utilities and Japanese financiers about uh, bringing a tango on in the uranium sector. And we managed to do all of that with a $10 million investment versus 10 million Australian dollar investment versus a 300 million market cap. So whilst we don't spend a lot of bandwidth talking about this asset, Andrew, I do think it's been a good move. I think it's recognised now as being highly strategic. The timing couldn't have been better in terms of when we made our investment and what's happened in the rare earth sector since. Uh, so I think it's just uh, another tool in our toolbox for bringing on the, the bigger flagship asset, which is a tango. I think it ties in real well, and I think there was some confusion amongst some of the investors out there when this came out because it was such a small transaction. But now that you go over it and you highlight out some of the reasoning that wasn't shared about how this gets structured, the doors it opens with future potential clients, quite a bit of potential attached to it. And then, of course, the relationship with JogMec, walking clients down the road of getting them to uranium, getting them down to Tango 8 makes a lot of sense. And price was uh, a rounding error, Brandon. Rugby would be the sport in this case. I think it's a fine choice, Andrew, I might add. This was a good move. And uh, I appreciate you explaining it a little bit more because I don't think everybody fully realized the impacts of this. It'd be interesting to see how this goes. Uh, sustainability and community effort in Namibia and also more broadly with some of your other efforts in the uranium and energy communities, Brandon, because you're well known out there. You do a lot of work with the WNA and you're really just buried in the sector. What has been happening on this front? Oh, well, thanks, Andrew. This is a good warm up for me, actually, because you're right. I do. I have earned myself a profile in let's use the word ESG and uranium around the world. And, and in fact, late tonight, my time on going on an OECD webinar 
with the likes of Nicolo Mai, who's the CEO of Arano Mining Internationally, to talk about ESG and talk about um, a report that OECD's just released into um, the societal benefits and community benefits of uranium mining. Uh, so thank you for giving me the chance to practice. <laughs> so uh, it's very important to us, but it always has been. It's not a knee-jerk reaction to investors prioritising ESG concepts. Uh, it's been fundamental not only to our project risk management, but also our corporate ethos since we started. And I started working for Bannerman back in 2009 as um, GM or General Manager Corporate Development, basically a VP position. And one of the first things that I was given was the responsibility for managing our environmental impact assessment and management plans, including the social aspects. And that included the rare opportunity to formulate a, a community engagement plan and a corporate social responsibility plan as it was back then, and then to implement it. And many of those programs are still running today, which is extremely satisfying for the team, but also for myself. Uh, to give you just one example, our early learner assistance program uh, was conceived by a senior employee back then. We rolled it out for the first time together with the Ministry of Education and basically that meant going to primary schools, talking together with the ministry, with their principals to identify those students who were at serious risk of dropping out of school almost always because of economic factors. So often it was things like their parents just simply couldn't afford to buy them a pair of shoes and they had a long walk to school. Or they had to share shoes with a sibling and so they couldn't go to school every day, that sort of stuff. And so what we did is we selected some schools and we piloted by identifying these students, getting from the principal their shoe sizes, their uniform sizes. In those days, parents had to pay a nominal, but for them, substantial amount to go to school. And so we would provide a uniform, we'd provide the shoes, we'd provide some basics, and we'd pay the school fees on behalf of those vulnerable students. Now, that's actually quite profound because if a student drops out at a primary level from school in Namibia, they never get back in. And they leave school before they can count and they leave school before they can write. And the chance of them escaping the poverty cycle is very, very slim. So if every student that we can intervene, even if they don't go all the way through to grade 12, but at least they make it into high school where they can count and they can write and they can learn a few life skills, that is quite literally life-changing. And also for their families as well, because once one student uh, in a family's made it through school, the chance of their siblings going through school is much higher. And even simple aspects like giving them a pair of shoes meant these, and giving them a uniform meant that these kids had a pride in going to school. In many instances, they would challenge their parents who felt that maybe they ought to be herding cattle instead and bringing a little bit of bread for the family. So these are profound life-changing impacts. And what makes us really proud with this program is we've been doing it for long enough that we've put 3,300 kids through this program. So there, there aren't too many opportunities in the mining sector to say you've had that sort of impact as a development company. You know, we're not even, we haven't earned a cent in this business. We haven't even entered into production. And I can give you examples like that in the tourism industry. I can give you examples like that um, environmentally and in other social programs 
we've got an outstanding 5% equity holder in our project, which is the One Economy Foundation, who do incredible work in hard to tackle taboo African issues like gender-based violence and um, fatherless impacts. And they're, they're prepared to tread where others fear to tread. And so we're incredibly proud to have them as a partner. That is genuine substance. That's not about just making a fancy brochure and quickly throwing a bit of money at someone and taking some photos of pretty looking kids, which unfortunately is the flavor of greenwashing that many mining companies, less in uranium, but many other mining companies have got. Um, this is a deep personal commitment by every single one of our employees uh, to effect change in Namibia. And the advantage of having such a long history of doing it and just the sheer numbers with these different programs, including what I've illustrated, uh, is that it can be easily distinguished from companies who haven't really paid attention to it and also can be easily distinguished from companies who might be at risk of over-talking or over-promoting what they have done in the communities. The government appreciates it, our investors appreciate it, our future customers absolutely appreciate and recognise its importance. Having that, that endowment of social credit becomes more and more important as nuclear social licence improves because we will become a supplier of choice of uranium to a number of utilities who put these sort of factors front and centre. So it has a huge personal payoff. It makes it easier to recruit. Um, the likes of Gavin Chamberlain, I don't think he would have looked at us twice if we didn't have this social uh, credibility together with the environmental and governance and, and other factors. Uh, but he wanted to be a part of what we're doing because he believes in nuclear and uranium, but he believes in the way that we're doing it. So it has this benefit. Um, it has a benefit in the way that we're going to be able to find customers for our uranium. Um, and it has an unquantifiable but substantial benefit in the way that we've been able to attract and retain our social license in country. I think that's the right approach to go about it because you mentioned both sides of the spectrum, the middle of the road approach, if you will, to doing it right, where the edges of the road are not doing it right in one way or the other, over promotion or not doing anything at all. And also just the fact that, again, even your time in the country, you didn't need the acronym of ESG to be able to do these things. This should come naturally to respectable operators that have integrity. The stewardship component of becoming an operator, or even in your case, a developer. And these efforts at the developer level is also very notable because you haven't earned a penny in this business with respect to actually producing and having a revenue. Spending this type of capital to establish that reputation and to help actually build the lives in the community going to be important from a also a jobs perspective in the future. That's going to be the next stage of this is jobs for the community and what the wealth of this project brings to that community is the next stage of this. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think you're right on with the thinking, Brandon. I think it's absolutely correct to what I would say as well. Well, look, hey, we could keep talking here, but for the sake of time, why don't we leave the discussion there? Um, and I'll finish up with uh, your final thoughts. And then also with this potential investors who are listening in, Bannerman Energy has a market capitalization of about 310 million Australian. Why should Bannerman be in the institutional, the fund, office, and also the retail investors portfolio? I think we should be in every uranium investors portfolio. If they're holding more than 
three or four companies, uh, we should be that number. First of all, because uh, every uranium investor needs African exposure, preferably Namibian exposure because it's such a good operating environment and it's so stable. Uh, we're a prominent developer in Namibia. Uh, we're the most advanced of the Namibian developers um, with environmental approvals and with the DFS out uh, during 2022. Uh, so we're, we're a market leader in terms of a junior in Namibia. Um, but also, apart from just being an advanced project, as we've talked about, we have, it's a low risk technical project, which will find its way into production. And it's also exceptionally leveraged, particularly when you compare the number of pounds we have in resources and reserves and our uh, production profile and expansion capacity compared to that $310 million market cap Aussie. Uh, so the, the value proposition, I think, is very clear uh, for a uranium investor. And when we talk about portfolio, obviously every portfolio benefits to an extent by diversification, um, but in uranium, it's particularly true. And I think for an investor who's looking for a part of their portfolio that represents leverage to upside or upshoot uranium price scenarios, but with a lot of underpinning value that creates the type of asymmetrical value proposition that we see in the broader sector, I think Bannerman's perfectly positioned for that. Uh, look, and the last thing, just to touch on something we talked about in my own investing, I always put management first uh, because it's management that will steward an asset through to superior shareholder returns, but it's also management who will pr protect value when things don't go uh, to your plan as an investor, at least. I can really say that between our board and our senior management team, we are world-class and exceptional for a junior company that's you know, under a billion dollars market capitalization. So they'd, they'd be the top points. and welcome any further inquiries and we do show a lot of respect to shareholders we communicate well and the same with investors so any of your listeners out there andrew uh, if they're not already on their register i'd obviously be delighted to welcome them in to join our mission to become the next producer in namibia what's the best way to make contact over there so we've got two twitter profiles we've got at bannerman energy uh, and that's run by Emma Culver, who's my communications assistant. So she's very good at responding to DMs and so on, or you can reach out to me directly at Brandon underscore Munro. Uh, we've got a LinkedIn profile, although we don't find that that's as interactive with people as Twitter is. Or you can come through to info at bmnenergy.com. And you can also go through to our website, which is bannermanenergy.com. Uh, so I find that they're probably the best ways to interact. We've got uh, a few different email databases. Um, one's for shareholders only, but another is for institutional investors and analysts where I publish a newsletter called Uranium Insights. And uh, we've also got our alerts platform where we advise subscribers about news of the company and our ASX announcements and so forth. You're a busy guy, Brandon. I need to let you get going so you can get to other work. But yeah, I really appreciate the time here. We've covered a lot of ground and we probably could have talked here for another hour or two, but we'll save the audience a bit for the sake of time and appreciate it. And look, safe travels coming up and, and looking forward to chatting again soon. Thanks very much for having me back on, Andrew, and, and for being so generous with the time allocation. It's been nice to really have the time to get into the issues properly. Look forward to the next one.